This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, this issue of why we want Mashiach is certainly a major theme in Judaism. If you pay attention to any part of the Siddur, any part of Davening, any part of what we're involved in, we're constantly asking Hashem, constantly again and again asking Hashem. Five brachas in Shemona Esrei. Semach David Avdecha, Yishlam Ircha. Over and over we're asking Hashem. Sechazene Enim Shuvcha. You say it in Elena, we say it in benching. We're constantly asking Hashem, please redeem us, please bring Mashiach, please, please, please. And I think the question that begs being asked is, okay, why? Um, you know, again, in our world that we live in right now, things are pretty good. All right, we have a little bit of a hitch, this thing called Corona, but bottom line is, life is pretty good. Life is, uh, we have yeshivas, we have Parnassah, we have health, basically, what do we need Mashiach for? What's lacking in our lives? What, what's so lacking that we're constantly asking Hashem, please, please, please bring Mashiach. So I would like to sort of give a little bit of a, a viewpoint on this. I think it'll be very important. But to do that, let's step back a little bit. The world as we know it is not the way it's supposed to be. If you'd like to know the way the world is supposed to be, it was the way Hashem created Odom Rishon. Adam Rishon was created with full faculties, brilliant, absolute clarity of understanding, and he was in a position, it's called Gan Eden, but he was in a position very different than we are right now. And if you'd like to understand the main difference, the Derech Hashem explains that there are three parts, three functions that the Neshama does, one that we're not even aware of. He says, one, the Neshama is supposed to be the life force of the person, and two, the Neshama is a huge part of the Seichel, the intellect, the understanding of a person, but there's a third part of the neshama that we're not even attuned to, we're not even aware of, and explains to Hashem that's probably the main function of the neshama, and that is to change the nefesh of Bahami. You see, I whom speaking to you comprises of two parts. There's a seichel, an intellect, and understanding, and then there's a nefesh of Bahami. All of the animal drives and appetites, all of the instincts in the human, the I whom speaking to you are made up of both. Now, the problem that I face is I'm in total contradiction. All day long, one or the other is vying for primacy. All day long, there's constant competition. With Adam Arishan, it was very different for one reason. He was brilliant, understood why Yeshem created him, understood what he was here for, and he understood the gravity of every action. Every mitzvah molded him, shaped him into what he'll be for eternity. Every Avera would damage him. And with that clarity of thought, he then had the ability to mold himself. He was malleable, plastic. He could shape himself. And any desire that he didn't want, he would just change it. Any feeling that he didn't, wasn't comfortable with, he would just eradicate it. If you'd like a very simple muscle to what it's like, um, many years ago, I took my wife to Weight Watchers. And I experienced one of those aha moments because I was a young colo guy. And this was a midday meeting. And I was probably the only male in the room. That was when I had a lunch break. In any case, I got to watch the following. The leader gets up and in front of the room, she says, okay, ladies, tell me. What, what happened this week? So a woman raised her hand. She said, well, I was doing real great, but then someone brought out potato chips. Oh, a groan goes out amongst the whole group of potato chips. And another woman says, I was doing really well. And then someone brought the chocolate cake to work. Oh, chocolate cake. And I watched these women in front of my eyes lose it. They were losing it. And I said to myself, I don't get it. What's the problem? Weight Watchers is a fully nutritious diet. Plenty of food, plenty of snacks. No one goes hungry on it. Why don't you just stick to the diet and lose the weight? What's the problem? What's the moaning, the groaning? 
Would you like to know the answer to that question? The answer to that question is when I join Weight Watchers, I make a firm resolve. For the next two months, I will not touch chocolate cake. And that firm resolve remains exactly in place until someone brings a piece of chocolate cake in front of me. And then suddenly, I will not. I will. I do. I don't. I want. I don't. I don't. And I, the essence of me, am in utter contradiction. I desperately don't want to touch it, but I hunger for it. Admiration did not have that. If Admiration made a decision that he no longer wanted to have chocolate cake, instantly he changed the Nefesh Bahami. He was plastic. It was malleable. It shaped the very essence of him. Now, his goal wasn't to lose weight, but if he felt there was a tad too much arrogance, he would shape it. If he felt he got angry a little bit, he would change that. If he felt there was some element of laziness within him, that positive decision, the choice that he made, would instantly change him. You and I are not like that. We could work and work day after day, week after week, and I could vouch for this act. I've been learning Musa now, I hate to say these words, but for probably now 39 years. And I've worked on different areas. And I've worked and I've worked week after week, month after month. And I can tell you, I made a little bit of headway, but a little bit of headway. But the problem is still there. I'm still struggling to struggle. That was not Adam Rishon. Adam Rishon was put into a body similar to ours, but very different, much more powerful, much more vigorous. But the key distinction was that his neshama was so powerful that he literally could change the essence of him. However, what Adam Rishon did when he ate from the eight Sadas was he changed the very nature of creation. Why he did it is a discussion for a future time. But what he did was he changed the essence of him. If you'd like to understand really what it was like, imagine that a man puts on a bear costume. You put on a bear costume, you're the bear inside, but you're wearing the costume of the bear. And that was Admiration before the sin. But after the sin he ingested, he took within him the Nefesh Bahami. And now suddenly we're in this constant state of war, this constant state of confusion, this total and buildable, where I want and I don't, I do and I don't, I'm jealous, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm not, I am. I'm, I'm in a constant state of confusion, constant state of conflict, and I can't change. That only happened after Adam Rishon ate from the Eitzadas. He no longer wear the bear costume as a suit. He was put into the body of the bear. And now the bear is hungry, it's ravenous, the bear wants to eat, but don't do that, I want to do it. And I, the essence of me, are in total contradiction. There'll be moments when I passionately desire something and I say to myself, what are you doing? I want it, don't, I do, I don't. I, I am in contradiction and I cannot change that. I can't stop it, I can't eradicate it, it's part of me. And because of that, Derek Hashem explains, Hashem had to introduce something in the world that wasn't supposed to be there. That thing is death. Admiration was created to live for eternity in Gan Eden to grow, accomplish, become who we should be, and in that state of utter perfection remain forever. But once he ingested, once he took the behemoth into him, now the purpose of creation can't be met. Because if for eternity I be in the state of ever conflict, that's not Gan Eden, that's Gehenna. And therefore Hashem had to introduce Misa into the world, death. And the man, Odom, is given a chance a few short years. In that state, he, he's in conflict. He grows, he accomplishes as much as he can. And then he leaves this body and leaves this current state. And the Derech Hashem explains that then there's another state. My body is put in the ground. I separate. I, the one who thinks, the one who feels, I, the guy inside. 
I separate and I go to the Olam HaNeshamas. The Olam HaNeshamas is a holding pen. And we stay there for a certain amount of time. Let's say it's Chazal called it a thousand years, whatever that means. But I, the essence of me, the same thinking with all of my memories, everything I went through, I'm there. And I get to enjoy the greatest enjoyment, proximity to Hashem, the greatest Tano. After a certain amount of time there is Tchiyas HaMesim. And again, Derek Hashem explains that Tchiyas HaMesim is sort of like we exist now, but very different and much more like Adam Rishon before the Chet. I, the essence of me, am put back into a body and that body is far more powerful and far more vigorous. It doesn't need food as we now need it. And I am then able to shape myself as Adam Rishon and able to reach the ultimate levels of perfection and thereby remain for eternity. This world, as we are now, Olam and Shamas, when my body's put on the ground and I separate and stay for a while, and we'll put back into the world in a very different form, in a very different shape. But please note, those three stages, there was no mention of the word Mashiach. Mashiach isn't in there. And if you study up and down, read the, those two parakim in the Derech Hashem, it's not mentioned. And the reason for that is because Mashiach is not dependent on any of those three states. Mashiach is this world as we are right now. The Rambam says this repeatedly, Olam Kimin Hago Nohe. The world will exist as it does now. When my kids were little, they went to a Ganizi camp. We were in Rochester, and they came home one during the three weeks on time, and they said, Abba, Abba, you don't believe it. What, what, what? When Mashiach comes, <clears throat> lollipops are going to grow on trees. I wanted to say Yingala, <laughs> lollipops aren't going to grow on trees. I don't want to bust, burst the bubble, but lollipops will not grow on trees. The world will function exactly as it does now. <clears throat> you'll go to work. You'll have a job. You'll plant seeds, and corn will grow. The world will function as it does now. There's only one distinction between the time when Mashiach is here and before. That main distinction is Malaya Aretz Deya Es Hashem. The entire world will be filled with knowledge of Hashem. Like the brilliant sun in midday, suddenly Hashem appears and everyone knows it and everyone understands it. We're living in utter, complete darkness now. We're living in complete, complete occlusion. I can't see a thing. And suddenly the lights are turned on and brilliantly, I suddenly wake up and see, and every human being sees this. Malaya Aretz Dei Hashem, the entire world is filled with knowledge of Hashem. And that chain changes everything. The other changes are nowhere near significant. Obviously, we all return to Eretz Yisrael. Hashem rebuilds the base of Mikdash, Malchus base David, we have Karbanas, we have every. But the single greatest change is the fact that suddenly every human being gets it, understands it, Hashem is present right here. And that change is the greatest change imaginable, because that changes everything. Explains the Rambam, everything then will be beautiful, happy, peaceful, crops will be in abundance, a man will have to work a very few, very short amount of time and be able to earn his keep, but everyone's aspirations, everyone's dreams and goals will be one thing, to know Hashem as much as he can. And everyone will be pursuing that. Every Jew, every Gentile, everyone will yearn with a tremendous, tremendous desire to know Hashem, understand Hashem, and delve into the knowledge of Hashem. Jews will reach a level of Nevoah. The Chavetz Chaim explains this piece of Yeshua. Every Jew will have a level of a Navi. A Navi means with a clarity of thought. And being able to experience Hashem fully, understanding Hashem as much as that person is able. And in that state, humanity will be vastly different. No competition, no war, no famine, no hunger, 
everyone, the entire world living in peace. And the Jews will be the most exalted nation, revered, looked up to, not because we have powerful MiG jets, not because of a strong army, but because a Jew is a representative of God. Oh my God, a, a Jew. You can imagine you walk into a stop and shop and suddenly a microphone comes on and someone comes on the mic. Oh, the management would just like to acknowledge the fact that a member of Hashem's Jewish nation has come amongst us and the Gentiles pass and they separate and we're going to Jew. But if that sounds facetious, and the Rambam explains, everyone's going to want to know one thing, Hashem. That's going to be the knowledge. That's going to be the desire. That's going to be, everyone is going to be focused on that. And Jews have the ultimate entree. We have the ultimate knowledge. We have the idea of Hashem. We have the idea of the Torah. And we will be coveted. We'll be exalted and everything will be vastly different if you'd like to understand what it will be like in Mashiach all you have to do is just imagine the following you open your eyes in the morning and wow to be alive Baruch Hashem utter complete peace prosperity let's go let me learn let me dominate. let me grow closer to Hashem let me know more let me accomplish more total joy but this is the point no fierce competitions within me all day long, all we have is I want and I don't, I do and I don't, I'm jealous, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm, I'm, we're constantly in confusion, constant, utter, absolute madness. That stops. Peace, quiet. When you're on that LL jet for 13 hours and finally the jets stop and, and, and when it stops, it's, it, it's, it's quiet. It's crashing. The, 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 the silence is deafening. That's when, like, when Mashiach comes, suddenly this peace within me. When I understand that Hashem is present, I understand every mitzvah helps me, I grow through it, I accomplish for eternity, and every year it damages me, suddenly everything is clear. If you just want to say it very simply, we say it all the time, words of Torah are more precious than gold, more precious than the finest gems. That, those are words. But could you imagine if I recognized that, if I felt it? That when I open a Chumash and read one Pasuk, it's more beautiful, more precious than pearls and gems and diamonds and wealth of... Alibi, I felt it, but I don't feel it. But when Mashiach comes, I will feel it. And if you'd like to know what it means in very simple language, I'll give you a very simple marshal. Sheldon Adelson was a typical American rags to riches story. He grew up child of immigrant parents in Chicago. He started his first business at the age of 11, he sold that business, but another one eventually started the Comdex, the uh, the hotel industry. Was he began a, a computer show? He eventually bought hotels to service that uh, that show. In any case, he created the Sands Venetian Corporation, and he is the owner of Sands Venetian. An interesting thing happened to Sheldon Adelson in two thousand and three. He took his company public. Now, at that point, he was worth in the billions, as in $4.3 billion or so, which is quite wealthy. But when he took his company public in 2003, something very, very interesting happened. Forbes magazines loves to count other people's money. And they say his personal wealth increased by 750%. In a year and a half span, he went from being a pretty, pretty wealthy guy to the fifth wealthiest man in existence. And they say, if you want to know how wealthy he became, he was earning, his personal wealth was growing at, to the tune of $1 million an hour. A $1 million an hour. Now, would you like to imagine what it's like to earn a $1 million an hour? So imagine, you open the dot for Yomi, and you close it, a $1 million richer. Woo! You, and Shabbos, you take a little shluff. You wake up 
two hours later, whoa, two million dollars richer. Wow, life is amazing. A million dollars an hour. What could be? I don't feel that now. I don't realize it now. But that is the reality. When I change, when I grow, when I learn a Pusik and Khumish, when I learn a mission, when I learn a Dafkamar, I'm changing the essence of me. I'm in, I'm forever accomplishing, but I'm accomplishing worlds. And the Khmadim are more precious than gold, more precious than silver, more precious than anything imaginable. We don't feel it now. So whatever I learned, I did, I did whatever, whatever, come on, big deal. I did that and I didn't that, come on, and I come on. And we don't feel it now. But when Mashiach comes like a brilliant spotlight, everything is lit up. And I get it. I understand it. Oh my goodness, what could I can accomplish? I can make it dominion. I can dominate. I can learn. Wow. The astonishing joy. And more than anything, the inner peace. No conflict. Not quite Adamarishan before the sin, but not far off from it. And that inner peace is probably the greatest thing that can be granted to a human being. And if you'd like to understand why we desperately crave Mashiach, if you want to know the simplest reason, all you have to do is look at the state of the union. I've done this in many Shemuzim. I don't want to go through the, the amount of problems and sorrows and worries and issues. And, and, and I don't even have words to describe it. I'll give you just one simple muscle. A number of years ago, this is now about five, six years ago, when the Stop Surviving, Start Living book first came out, I was on book tour and I went to many, many places. And along the way, I went to Israel and I, I spoke at many yeshivas and many seminaries. Now, if you know the book Stop Surviving, Start Living, a big part of it is the fact that Hashem gives each person a life setting. Poverty or wealth, health or the opposite. Hashem custom crafts, hand crafts a particular life setting to each person that is the ideal stage setting for that person to grow, to accomplish. We're all but actors on the stage. These are but trinkets, these are but props. <clears throat> but each of us as an actor on the stage is given the exact scenery, the exact life setting, perfect for us to grow and accomplish and reach our potential. Okay, so that was a theme. And I said this to many, many groups and many places, many yeshivas. And I was speaking in one woman's seminary. And as soon as I was finished, I opened the floor for questions. And a young woman, she's about 18, 19 years old, raised her hand and says, Rabbi, I hear what you're saying. But I'm in such pain. My life is so harsh. How could I apply that to my, to my situation? I sort of tried to, <clears throat> I didn't really want to address the issue because it didn't make sense to me. So I sort of skirted the issue and took the next question. The next question, Rabbi, I hear what you're saying, but life is so harsh, so hard. How could I apply that? Took the next question. Out of the 60 girls there, 40 of them were asking about the same question. My life is so harsh, so hard, so difficult. How could I apply it? And I don't know what to say. I don't know what I was dealing with. It didn't make sense because these girls are all well-dressed, come from fine homes. Somebody's paying the $20,000, $25,000 seminary fee. They're obviously not poverty-stricken and obviously not suffering as we would commonly know, yet they're all in pain, in very real, desperate, dire straits. And the only thing that I could sort of give a muscle to, to me, was the following. Imagine after the war. Imagine it's 1946, and you're speaking to a group of survivors. And they just lived through the war years in concentration camps. And you say to them, Rabbi, listen, I know how hard it was. And I know how many nightmares and how much, how many memories you have. But we have to rebuild. We have to focus on positive. To re-. And that's what I felt like. I was talking to these young women. And I was talking to like as if they were survivors of the Holocaust. But they weren't. They grew up in the lap of luxury in the United States of America, living the greatest life imaginable. And I'd like to share with you one simple observation. In the course of history, 
There has never been this much abundance and wealth available to the common man. In the course of history, there's never been this much freedom and opportunity available to the common man. You and I can do whatever we want. You want to be a doctor, a lawyer, an Indian chief, go for it. Every field is open. Every opportunity is there. You have freedoms. You have rights. You have health care. That's astonishing. In the course of history, there was never, ever this type of lifestyle. And if you were to go back 100 years ago, 200 years ago, take the kings of yesteryear and bring them into our world, they would be astonished. They would fall on their faces. They couldn't imagine the luxuries, wealth, and abundance that we have. And I believe each one is weighed out against the other. As much as we have tremendous luxuries, opulence, and wealth today, we don't suffer physically, but we sure do suffer emotionally and psychologically. And I've never seen the amount of troubled, hurting people, the amount of unwholesome people, the amount of people who are really suffering, genuinely, acutely suffering to the extent that they're really, they're really having a rough time in existence. And again, as an illustration of that, these young women who should be in the height of their lives, carefree, no responsibilities. You know, when you're 18, 19, life is beautiful. You, 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 don't, you don't have any response. Your parents take care of all your needs. You're in seminary all day learning. What could be better than that? And they're all so troubled and worried and so such inner conflict. If you'd like to know why we need Mashiach, all you have to do is just look around. The suffering, the pain, the agony. I look at the amount, I mean, listen, the amount of depression and anxiety, OCD. We have common names now. I don't want to go through the statistics, but the amount of people that suffer from acute psychological disorders has never, ever been anywhere near these numbers. And I grew up in the United States of America, and I knew occasionally you had people that had issues, trouble. I had a lot of friends, and I grew up as a regular guy, many, many people I associated with. I remember in my age group, there was one girl, one girl had something called anorexia nervosa. I haven't even heard of it. Now it's as common as common as Corona. And we grow, we grow up in a world, and we live now today in a world that's so unwholesome. People are so fragile. People are so damaged. And the cost of it is incredible. Families ripped apart, siblings who can't talk to each other, parents who can't talk to their children, children who can't talk to their parents. Wherever you go, wherever you are, there's trouble, there's issues, there's, there's sorrows. And at a certain point, you say, Hashem, enough. Let's just end it. Let's just stop. We've been in this long exile way, way too long. Way, way too long. Hashem, just stop it. Bring us back. Bring us back. We can't do it, Hashem. You do, please. And at a certain point, the pain, the agony should be overwhelming. And if you want to know why we want Mashiach, probably the most selfish reason, and it might be the most powerful reason, is because life will be vastly different. Life will be as it should be. Life will be what it should be like. And I want to end my little remarks and then open the floor to questions, but I want to end it with, with, a, with a story that I heard from Eric Crone, because it so well defines what we now face. In 1967, the entire Arab world converged on Israel, and everyone knew what the end would be. The end would be Israel would be annihilated. But astonishingly enough, that's not quite what happened. And in really six hours, and we'll call it six days, but it was six hours that the war was won. In any case, the war was won. But about the third day, Begin, who was a Chavar Knesset, says to Levi Eshkol, this is our opportunity. 
we can take back the old city. And with tremendous, tremendous perseverance, and Begin convinced the cabinet, they voted, and in fact, the Tzanchanim, they went in and they captured the old city. You have to remember, this was owned, now was owned, was controlled by the Jordanians, and Jews couldn't even look at the Harabais, the coastal, nothing. And the Tzanchanim entered, there were some fights, and they took the entire old city, and those famous words that were echoed out across the airways in Israel, the Temple Mount is in our hands. And all of these soldiers rushed to the Kosel. And it was a group of Dat'im, of Frum soldiers who were standing at the Kotel crying, crying tears in their eyes. There were two paratroopers off on the side who were secular. And they're watching their comrades crying at the Kotel. And one of them begins crying. And he's crying bitter, bitter tears. He's crying bitter, bitter tears. And his friend says to him, they're, they're religious. I understand why they're crying. But you, why are you crying? And he said these words, I'm crying because I don't know why I should be crying. At that moment, he realized how much was lacking. He didn't even know why he should be crying. So if you don't know why you should be crying over the fact that we don't have the base of Migdash, that alone is the reason. We've become so immune and the noise is so powerful. The static is so loud. We forgot what life is supposed to be like. Life is supposed to be happy and joyful, serving Hashem, knowing why I'm here. And knowing why Hashem created the world without competition, without fights, without wars. You know the worst job I told, I told Ushi this, the worst job in the world to be when the time of Mashiach is don't be a locksmith. Why? Because there won't be keys anymore. You won't have to lock your car. You won't have to lock your house because no one will steal. Abundance, plenty. And everyone sees Hashem right there. Everyone recognizes, oh my goodness, the creator of heaven and earth is right here. No one would steal. And no one would do anything other than wanting to know Hashem, grow and accomplish. And that joy, that happiness, that peace is so needed. So if you don't know why we should cry about Mashiach not being here, that itself is the reason. And I think the message is it's high time and we have to finally dominate and ask Hashem, show us the way, help us, let us just end this long bitter gullus. And Amit Hashem, that will be the very next step. And now, Ushi, I'd like to open the floor to questions. Ushi will take over moderating. He'll call on you. If you want to ask a question, please feel free to raise your hand at any time. He'll call on you to, uh, you could speak up. If you're a little shy, you could also just use the, um, the Q&A. You could type it in. But Ushi will take over from here. Ushi, thank you. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Um, as we know, uh, Rabbi Shaver wants it to be very dynamic. And people should please ask questions. Anybody who wants to ask a question, please raise your hand. If not, please put the question in the Q&A. Rabbi Schaefer, we did get a bunch of uh, questions pre. So let's start with one pre while people are still raising their hand. And then we'll go to them. Is that okay? Sure. A very basic question. I'm married for two years now, Baruch Hashem. My husband is in Kolel. He is learning Stark. We are blessed with children and we get supported. Basically, I have everything I need. Why I need help with, with is when Tisha B'Av comes around, it's very hard for me. I don't really understand how to connect to it. Right. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. You don't understand how to connect to it. Why? Because we've been living in this exile so long, we forgot what normal is like. You know, this is the new normal is the expression today. Well, let me tell you something. People running around with masks on their face is not normal. Corona is not normal. But imagine a kid, I'll make it simpler. Imagine Rahman al-Sun, a child is born in Auschwitz. And is brought up there. There are such stories. You know, little children were brought to Auschwitz at the age of two or three. And they lived through it. Imagine Rabbi Lau, by the way, for example. 
Imagine that a little child is brought to Auschwitz at three years of age and spends four years in this environment and four years scrounging for one piece of bread, which is the daily ration, four years being beaten for just standing not straight in a line. And after a while, it becomes normal. After a while, it becomes regular. After a while, that's the way life is. And suddenly, that child that now at six years of age is let out of Auschwitz. But where's the barbed wire? Where's the comfortable crushed bread? Where's that hard thing to sleep at? What, what? This is so strange. That's normal. And as strange as it sounds, a child being brought up in Auschwitz would think that's normal and wouldn't even know what it means to yearn for freedom, to yearn for normalcy. That's what we're like. We forgot what it's like to be normal, to be happy, to have parents who love children and children who love parents, to have a peaceful environment, to have a sense of, of, of understanding why I'm here, a sense of utter fulfillment, a sense of growing, accomplishing. There's such noise, such unhappiness, such unrest, such we forgot what it's like to be normal. We forgot what it's like. And what can I tell you? That's right. And that may be good for the biggest reason to cry. The fact that we think this is normal and it's not. There's so much wickedness. There's so much evil. You know, we become so so numb. You know, there was Manute Bull was a African fellow. He was a fellow group in Africa. He was seven foot ten. And anyway, someone discovered him and brought him to America. And he began playing in the NBA. He was so tall that it was like a, in any case, his first exposure in the United States of America, he spoke a little bit of English and he was watching an ad on TV and someone was selling toothpaste. And he said, she's lying. Why do you believe that? She's lying. Meaning he was so unaccustomed to people lying to him. He didn't realize it was an advertisement. He didn't realize it was just an ad. We become so immune to lies, to sheker, to falseness, to corruption. Yeah, politicians lie. When do they lie? Only when the lips move. But that's normal. But it's not normal. A human being's word should be his word. A human being's feelings should be what's representative of what's right, good, and proper. And that's what he should hold to. Everybody should be that way. Every human being should be that. And that's how it should be. The world we live in is abnormal. Evil shouldn't be here. Bad shouldn't be a part of life. Unfortunately, it is. And when you become so immune, you don't realize how disastrous it is, how damaged, how much it affects us, how much it affects our children. And when you get a chance to breathe the fresh air, and maybe that's what Tisha B'Av should be more than anything, a chance to breathe the fresh air to an understand that this is not normal. We're supposed to be in a very different world, living in a very different environment. And when you miss Boney, when you think about that, hopefully you realize that there's much, much to cry about. And if you don't know what to cry about, that itself is what to cry about. Rabbi Shaver, let's take a live question. Daniel wants to ask, okay? Daniel. Okay. Um, so, Chasa Shalom. Say hello because it's Tisha B'Av. But... Right. Yeah. So, Chasa Shalom to, to say that we don't want Mashiach or anything like that. But at the same time, I feel like maybe Fakert that we, we maybe have so much more scar because despite, despite the constant battle between the Yetzirah and Yetzirah Tov, we're still being Shomer Torah Mitzvah. So, aren't we getting much more schar than they were probably getting? Okay, Daniel, it's an excellent question. So the Chavetz Chaim, who wrote an entire sefer called "The Peaceful Yeshua, waiting for the salvation, and it was parak after parak about how much we should daven for Mashiach and how much we should yearn for it. He also, Chavetz Chaim also makes a very important point. He says, don't daven for Mashiach so much. Why? Because he says, if you're in a time of war, you're in a time of war and a, you're a soldier, you can rise through the ranks very quickly. He says, imagine you start as a private, but you fight bravely and you win the, 
to become a corporal. You then lead, fight again bravely and you become a sergeant. You lead your troops in a battle and suddenly become a lieutenant. You lead those troops in battle. Within a span of two years, you go to lieutenant, to captain, to major. You become a general within three, four years if you're brave and you're fighting. <clears throat> but during peace times, it's much more difficult. During peace times, you have to study, take exams. And after five years, you might go from corporal to sergeant. Then another five years of study and exams, and you might get to, <clears throat> to lieutenant. But in a lifetime of serving in peace, you'll never reach the rank that you could during times of war. Wartime, you can reach radical levels very quickly. Explains all the time, that's our day and age. If you succeed in this world that we live in with such blackness, such darkness, such confusion, and you grow and you accomplish, you keep Torah and you learn and you dominate and become a real Ebed Hashem, you reach levels and levels that are unimaginable that you won't be able to reach Mashiach time. Why? When Mashiach comes, everyone gets it. Everyone wants to do only one thing, learn, dominate. Listen, I don't drink bleach. I don't put my hands in fire. Why? Because self-inflicted damage. When Mashiach comes, we'll all get it with that level of clarity. Do a, a sin? What are you, crazy? Sin? But no one's watching. No one's, what are you, yeah, but damages me. For eternity, I'll be damaged. Why, how could I, why would I do what, what were you thinking? Why would I ever dream of doing that? That clarity of understanding, everyone, Jew and Gentile, will have when Mashiach comes. When we have that level of clarity, obviously, there's much less star because there's much less challenge, much less fight, much less star. And explains of its time. Therefore, you're right. Don't dominate so quickly for Mashiach because right now the opportunity is much greater. Okay, that is true. And at the same time, it's enough. I've been here. Maybe I'm getting a little bit older. I agree with your question. I remember very clearly in my early days in yeshiva, that question was very, very powerful to me. And I really <clears throat> couldn't understand it. I dominate because it's supposed to, and I recognize what we but 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 as you get a little bit older and you get a little battle worn and you see the pain and the deprivation and the amount of suffering that people go through after a while you say enough 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 just Hashem please but more than anything the little Hashem and the honestly if we could tap into what it's like then I'm telling you it's just jump don't listen sir Hashem will help with sir get me out of here that's I think I would say Daniel okay thank you I hear okay Ushi here we go. Here we go. Okay, I have another question over here. I try to instill in my kids the idea about Mashiach and about the base of Middash. I made it my mission to speak about it every Shabbos by the table. The problem is my kids are getting older, and when I start talking about it, they roll their eyes and they think, oh boy, here he goes again with Mashiach. What am I doing wrong here? Um, that's a problem. That's a problem. But I'll be honest with you. Um, that problem is... I hope you'll excuse me. I'm just trying to text people in my family that I'm giving a live Zoom share and they should know to be quiet. So <laughs> people in my family who don't know that I'm giving a live Zoom share and they don't realize that the voice in the kitchen is overheard now on cheer. So I'm just sending them a message. So I apologize for that. Um, so listen, like everything in life, you have to fight the battle with wisdom and understanding. And the problem, you see, the problem you face is much like any parent has with their children. You know, one of the interesting things about immigrant children is an immigrant child will speak with the same accent as their parent until they go to school. And the minute they go to school, suddenly they pick up the accent of the native country. And it doesn't matter how fluent they are in the native tongue. And it doesn't matter how fluid the immigrant child is in the tongue of the parents. The minute they go to school, their group, their peer pressure becomes so much of an influence that they lose the immigrant accent and pick up the native accent. So let me be very blunt. The reason for that is because when a child hits a certain age, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, for sure by 12, 
their peer group is far more influential, far more powerful of a force in their life than are their parents. As much as they love the parents and as good a job as you've done and as great as a connection you have, the peer group is a much greater influence. So bottom line is as follows. You have certain understandings and you understand the need for Mashiach and you understand how important it is, but your kids aren't living in that world. They're living in a world where this is normal. They're living in a world where this is regular. Ma, what are you talking about? Shit, this is the world. Ma, get with the program. It's the 21st century. There's no, come on, get like this. This is normal. And when you live in that world, and no, this is the new normal, where normal is whatever, it's very difficult to talk to them because you're speaking a foreign language. So I think what you have to do at a certain point is you have to realize, is it being effective? No, you have to stop and change track. Maybe you have to pick a totally different way of doing it. And maybe you have to stop it altogether for a while. You may not succeed in getting over that concept. Because again, to a child, their peer group, what they grew up in, that's normal. That's regular. Tell them something else. This is abnormal. It takes a lot of years until you realize how strange the environment we live in is, how unnatural it is. So my answer would be to just, I guess, take it easy a little bit on that subject. I have a little follow-up question. It's really similar, but it's a little bit more pointed at the Chinuch. What's the best way to teach our children on tish- about Tishbov when they're younger? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Um, the, the answer really is to find things that in their world they relate to. In other words, it's it's not an easy thing because, again, you know, the air that I breathe is the air. And you don't realize how polluted the air is until you go into the country. and you, What's that smell? The air smells. It smells. Yeah, it smells. It's called fresh air. Fresh, But, but there's no carbon monoxide. There's no, there's no pollutants in it. Well, yeah. So the, the problem is when you grow up it, it's it's very difficult. <clears throat> Obviously, you want to tell them as much as you can about what life was like in the time of the base of Mikdush. You want to use stories. You want to use Baruch Hashem, a lot of material now. You know, Chavetz Chaim Heritage Center and many of the other organizations have a lot of material for children. And there are Baruch Hashem, very, very good programs. And you have to use what's available and it has to be in a world that they live in. and has to talk to them in their language. So it's not an easy task because to be honest with you, we don't get it. I'm getting older and I don't, Listen, I don't get it. It still, it still seems normal. But understanding that it's not normal, understanding that it's, it's something that's very difficult for a child. But again, there's a lot of materials out there, and I suggest you use it as much as you can. Okay, Rabbi Shaver, let's go to a live question. Dan? Yes, hi. Hi. I think that... Oh, uh, that. that right, oops, caught me. Answered my question already. So I was going to ask... Uh, because the other questioner asked about Kinuch. So I have two boys, 11, 8, and a girl that's two and a half. And I was going to ask, what do you think would be age-appropriate material to teach them about Mashiach? Um, again, it's, you know, you're right. It's, it's, it's the same challenge. There is, again, Baruch Hashem, there are, there are different, um, there are venues you could use. Again, if you go online, um, you'll see the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Center uh, has a number of programs. There are a number of other programs also. I haven't, I, I wasn't looking carefully because I don't have, I don't have school age kids any longer. But you'll see in the, there are, in the papers they're advertised a number of programs for kids of, you know, for, for children. Um, now, typically, what happens in camps, they run programs specifically geared towards children, which means they have stories and they have events and they have you know entire programs geared and even the keynotes are geared for kids the problem is camp i don't think exists this year um but again online there are many many such similar things that have been done so i recommend you google it um start with the Chavis time heritage center they're a great organization anyway and the money you, you give to them supports that organization 
And again, they have quite a number of uh, you know program speakers on many different topics. In addition, they have children's programming. So start there and look around and you have to find things that's appropriate for your children. Thank you. Okay, let's take another question over here, an interesting one. Um, I'm going through tremendous pain right now and I cry and I cry and I cry. But when I'm crying, I'm crying for my own personal situation, nothing to do with Tisha B'Av of the, of the Gullahs. Okay, so that is Tisha B'Av and that is the Gullahs. You understand what I'm saying? You're in pain, you're crying. Why are you crying? Because life is tough. You have situations, problems, challenges, whatever it may be. That's not supposed to be. That's not a part of life. Life is supposed to be, you have to understand something. Hashem is a vastly capable creator. Hashem is capable of creating a world with infinite amount of beautiful flowers, trees, beautiful flavors, aromas. Look at the world we live in. It's replete with so many things designed for the human being to enjoy. And you have to understand that it pains Hashem and that as much as that's there, we don't enjoy it. When was the last time you bit into an apple and said, wow, the flavor, the aroma, the texture, it's astonishing. Hashem created a world for us to enjoy. The purpose of the world is not for our enjoyment. The purpose of the world is to grow and accomplish and reach our station in, in the world to come. But along the way, Hashem wants us to enjoy. And Hashem put in so many different features, so many different things for us to enjoy. Hashem is the mate Hashem is the benefactor. Hashem wants to give. And the world that we live in is not the way it's supposed to be. Peace, prosperity, happiness, joy. That's supposed to be the world. And that's what Hashem wants to give. Hashem is the mate Hashem only wants to give to human beings. If you're feeling tsar, if you're crying, there's a reason for it. The reason is because life is tough, but that's the problem. Life is not supposed to be tough. Life is not supposed to be this way. We're supposed to be happy and joyful. Yes, we're supposed to work, but there's supposed to be a fulfillment, an inner joy, a sense of accomplishment of wow. And that simcha sachaim is lacking. And if you want to know why you should cry, that's it. If you're crying, that is the thing to cry about. Why do I have to cry? Hashem, change it, end it. And so life could be as it's supposed to be. Basically, if the tsar person is having, that's the tsar of Mashiach. So the world is supposed to be more perfect. That tsar isn't supposed to be. Now, you're right. It's more pure to daven, you know, for Mashiach because we want this covered Ashkina and we want to be in the base of Mikdash and want to serve. That's more pure. But just the fact that you're having pain isn't supposed to be there. And that alone is enough reason to cry because Hashem, please end it because I don't enjoy this very much. Again, anybody has questions, please raise your hand, text them in. Um, there's an interesting question here in the chat box, Rabbi Schaefer. I want to read it. We always know that part of the reason why we're crying because Hashem has pain because you're not the base of Migdash. So the question is how... I just have to tell the people in my family, the people in my family, if you hear this message, so the talking in the kitchen, I hear over here on Zoom and everyone hears this across the country. So say what you want to say, but say it carefully, make sure everyone hears it uh, well. Say it loud and clear. Say it loud and clear so people hear you. All right. Here's a, here's a question from the chat box. Yeah. How are we supposed to think about Hashem's pain, that's in the Gullahs, if Hashem doesn't feel any pain. Okay. Um, that's, a, that's a philosophical question. Um, and I don't think it's correct either. Um, so let, let, me, let me first frame the question with it. You'll excuse me for doing a little introduction for us. What does it mean Hashem is pain? So obviously Hashem is boundless, limitless. But Hashem is the mative. Hashem is the giver. Hashem wants to benefit. Hashem, all Hashem wants to do is give. And the most frustrating thing, if you're a giver and you can't give, it's pain. Hashem feels our pain more than we feel our pain. 
and that is pain to the Shechina. Hashem feels that pain, and if it could be that pain is painful to Hashem. And if a person were really a chassid, if a person were really an a high madriga, he would say, Hashem, please end it. I know how much this is hurting you because it's hurting us. And I don't want it to hurt you anymore because the more it hurts us, the more it hurts you. And please, Hashem, stop our pain so you can stop your pain. And the simple reality is that Hashem does experience in that sense, not pain like we feel, ouch, my arm hurts, or not frustration, lack of control. Because the way Hashem created the world now, Hashem is no the world. And there's much in the world that's going not the way Hashem wants it to be. And therefore, if it could be, if someone could change it, if someone could, when Pinchas stood up and he stopped Zimri and, and Kazi Batsur, he saved Hashem the difficulty, the trouble of having to annihilate the Jewish nation. Because it was such a chil Hashem, such a busha, that Hashem would have had to, and Pinchas, you, you saved the day. Thank you. So, there was a, a tremendous sense of appreciation that Hashem had for Pinchas. Why? Because he stood up for the honor of Hashem and did that which it could be Hashem would have to do in a much grander scale and didn't want to do because the simple reality is when you create a human being with free will it comes with a certain cost Hashem is limitless, boundless and nothing is out of Hashem's direct control but when Hashem gave over free will to man there's a certain element, a certain risk involved and that is man might well do things he's not supposed to and then as the native, as a benefactor, as a giver Hashem has to sit back and say "Oh, just get it, just wake up, stop it you don't have to be pained, you don't have to go through this gull is going to end, please, please just so I, I believe the answer is that Hashem does experience that sense of wanting it to be, wishing it to be, not being able to be a mative, and that is on whatever we can understand that is painful to Hashem. Okay, I want to ask you the next question. I have a hard time saying kinis. Is it okay if I only say a few of them versus all of them? Yeah, the answer is absolutely. In other words, absolutely. One of the problems with kinis is that they're written in Hebrew. And when I say Hebrew, Rebelozer HaKalir, who was um, 11th century, it was a Rishon, maybe even earlier, and it's written with such poetic language, and it's, it's beautiful, but it requires sitting. You have to learn it like a, like a black amar. You have to sit down and learn it and realize what Psukim is referring to, what incidents he's referring to, and therefore it becomes very difficult. The goal on Tishabov is to sit on the floor and cry what we've lost. Now, the Minog is, Kinnos have been created because it was a good way, a good format for people to get into it. It was organized and structured, and it was a, man, a method, a, a way and that people would be able to focus on the Khurban and what was lost. But that's what its goal is to accomplish, getting me to recognize what's lacking, what's, what's not here, allowing me to cry, allowing me to mourn. And you have to find a way to make it work. Many years, I, what I would do, honestly, I would, during Kinos, I would have other material that I would read that would be Ma'ore, either be Chazal, sometimes stories. And I would say a kin and read something. And the minute I felt some emotion, the minute I felt crying, then I'd start back reading the Kinos. And it was like a back and forth. But the idea of saying, you know, from nine o'clock in the morning, let's say I dive in this morning, I dive in 8.30, I give saying 9.30 till one o'clock saying kinest straight, um, and most of us are not going to get into it. So you should use other material. Now, for me, many years I used Holocaust material. And many years I would, I read a lot of Holocaust material, first person, you know, account and et cetera. And usually during the three weeks, I would start reading and reading and reading. By the time Tishbev came along, I didn't need a book. I didn't need to read because the stories were in my mind and I just had to, and think about it and review it and, and tears which are flowing and then you read one kinna in that mode it's it's a vastly more effective so the answer is the kinnas are a tool to get us to recognize to mourn to feel it but you have to use it wisely and again that's why many killers want to do the ruffle speak of the stories of the events to be more ordered people but you have to find what works so that you can actually mourn and actually legitimately cry of what we lost 
Rabbi Shem, we're getting a few of these questions. I'm going to try to put it in one. Can I try to condense a few questions together? Sure. I'll read like two of them and then they get the concept. How can, we lead, how can we lead more wholesome lives? It appears that the world, while it's oyster, has become so complicated and divided. While there is so much nuisance to be sensitive to, it has become so fragile. Wait, how do, I, how do we deal with the, with the crisis that are, we're living in from a practical and a shakafic standpoint? Basically, a few more questions. You know, all the craziness that we see in the world, basically the world coming apart by its seams. How do we, in a, in being from el and how do we are supposed to deal with it? Okay, good question. Excellent question. Let me start with the following. When I was 18 years of age, I would read the front page and editorial section of the New York Times every day. My father was born in Berlin. My father's a Yekka. And my father was, even though he never had much schooling, he was a very educated, very intelligent man. And part of my education, that's what you do. In fact, it wasn't when I was 18. It was way before I started reading. And it was reading the Times, at least the front page and the editorial section. And that was what an educated person had to do. And that was my, uh, that's what I did. I have a little piece of advice today. Don't read the New York Times. But forget the New York Times. Don't pay attention to the news. Ignore it. Shut it off. Just totally isolate. The world has become so demented, so off kilter that run away from it. Let me be very clear. My Rebbe Rashid used to be very, very much focused on politics and knowing what's going on. And it was a huge focus. Oftentimes in Blatchett, Rashid would talk Ashkafa about and politics and what's going on in the world because he wanted us to be worldly and knowledgeable, not to be cloistered and not to be, live in a small bubble. But that was when the world was normal. The world is abnormal. The world is so teeming at the verge of insanity. It's so absurd. So you can't read the news and remain normal. You can't read stuff. Yeah, again, it's like reading reading the Holocaust diary. Imagine you read a Holocaust diary. And, oh, that's normal. That's regular. That's, you read that every day for four years. Imagine every day you read a page of Anne Frank's diary every day for four years. What are you going to be? You're going to be depressed. You're going to be, oh, my God, sick of crap. You can't be normal and actually read the news, listen to what's going on, because it's so sick. And the great damage is it sounds normal. It's regular people, people like you and I, who are ties and suits and are educated, and they speak well, they're articulate, and they sound normal, except they're, ab- they're s- strange Martians. They're from a different planet. They're not a different culture. And listen, again, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not radical. And I grew up in the United States of America. And I remember vividly, I was a kid in the early 70s, and that was a radical time. I mean, it was right after the 60s, and things were, ra- and the street was wild, and what was shown on TV was wild. And those were happy days compared to what's today. Those were normal times. A man married a woman, had two kids, lived in a house in a suburb, and that was life. That's not life today. Life today is so absurd, so teeming on insanity. You don't want to expose your children to it. You don't want to expose yourself to it. Run away from it. Shut it off. Don't listen. Don't. But what's going to happen? How am I going to know? I promise you. By the way, I've done this for the past little while now. I stopped listening to anything. I stopped going on any news portal I stopped going any block because it's just so sick. And believe it or not, I'm still alive. I still am able to dominate, learn, earn a living. I'm still able to do everything. And I don't know what's going on. And by the way, I know as well as everybody else. I hate to say well, that. How do you check your winning lotto numbers? Oh, that's something else. You check, your, check the lot. That part you check. But, but I want to explain something to you. If I have a political discussion with people, and I have these often, somehow it is that I'm as knowledgeable about the issues as they are because the issues are just whatever. And trust me. You'll do much better if you shut off the news, totally lock yourself away from it. The Rambam says, at a certain point, the only choice is to go to the Midbar. When the world becomes so insane and so out of touch with reality, with normalcy, we're not talking about normal things anymore. 
I don't even want to get involved in all the deviance and the, and the, you can't say God today without being, you know, questioned. You can't say, I, I do not want to do it. I don't want to get involved in, but trust me, I don't have to explain to you. It is no longer normal. And your best recourse would be not to listen, not to pay attention, to go back into your cave and don't worry about it. Hashem will help. You'll be a lot better off for it. We have a lot of questions. I'm going to try to condense them, okay? So they're like two questions. Let me try to read both of them. They're very similar. I really want to cover these questions. Uh, both similar questions about people that don't think they don't want Mashiach. Part of the reason why I have a hard time wanting Mashiach, the idea of grasping, of learning and davening and doing chetz without completely burning out, I don't feel my whole self will just instantly change. And that while we might be in the time of Mashiach, I'm scared to defy Hashem, but that will kill me on the inside frightening myself. That's question one. Question two, I really don't want Mashiach. I know I should. I don't know what it will be about, and I'm, I'm scared of the, no, the, 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 the fear of the unknown. I know it's not right, but that's just the way I feel. Any ideas? Okay, so here's the first thing to recognize. Um, God is very, very good. Hashem is a very, very good, and Hashem is very, very capable. And what I mean by that is very simply. And the reason why, let's deal with the first part. I know, I, you know, here, I had a fellow... I was a high school rebbe for about 15 years. And one fellow I remember asking me, he said, is it true that um, in, in Olam Haba, all the Siddiquim will be sitting around the table with crowns on their heads learning all day? I said, well, that's one description of it. He said, that's not Ganadin, that's Gehenim. To a 16-year-old, right there in his life, the idea of learning Torah all day in front of Gemara was not exactly Ganadin. <clears throat> but what I tried to explain to this young man is, and that's because according to your currency right now, it's not very valuable and it's not very important, not very significant and not very meaningful. Imagine I gave you a book of Greek poetry and told you read it all day for the next three weeks. You would not find that experience very enjoyable. The reason why is because you don't know poetry. You don't know poetry. You have no interest in it. But imagine that I were to hold up a $100,000 bill and say to you, all you got to do to earn this $100 bill is lift up your pen once or twice a day. I think you'd find it very compelling. You'd be very motivated to lift the pen and you would know exactly how to do it. You see, once I get one single cognition that forever I am what I shape myself into, every action, every thought, every deed shapes me for eternity. And for eternity, I'll either be tremendously great or the opposite. I'll either be close to Hashem or I'll be pushed away solely based on what I do. If I ever got that, if I ever realized that, everything I do would have so much more significance, so much more importance. When Chazal say, they mean it. If we understood the currency, we understood the value of one word of learning Torah, and we'd run for, oh my goodness, more than $100,000. And we'd love it because it's so meaningful and so purposeful. And more than that, a whole focus. And you see, we're living in darkness now. And when the sun starts shining brilliantly in midday, every one of us gets it. We see Hashem. And suddenly our entire value system changes. And suddenly all I want to be is close to Hashem. All I want to know is more about Hashem. You don't need to be schooled in the greatness of this world to look at a landscape and say it's magnificence. And sometimes you have to stop because there's so much static, it was so busy. But if you look at a beautiful, beautiful landscape, it's it's gorgeous. It's just it's beautiful. You look at the night sky, just it's gorgeous. You don't need to be trained in that. And the reason why we're not drawn to learning Torah is because right now we're living in darkness and confusion. The minute the lights come on, suddenly my entire value system changes. I recognize the impact of every action. I recognize that Hashem is right here, and every human being is going to want to know one thing, one thing only, more about Hashem, understanding Hashem's ways, Hashem's world, understanding being close to Hashem, because that is the ultimate good. 
The reason we don't feel that now is because I'm blocked, I'm occluded, I'm layer after layer of physicality. But if that's removed, <clears throat> my neshama suddenly charges forward. So the th- one simple fact you have to understand is what you're feeling now, you won't be feeling then. You'll be feeling very different, and you'll be feeling joyful and purposeful, and you'll be feeling let's go. And that growth that you'll accomplish then will be so meaningful, so impactful, so joy-filled that it will be outshine anything you could ever imagine in this world today. Hope that answers the question. It's part of it anyway. I think so. Okay, interesting question. I know there's a lot of machlikas and yeshitas, but according to the that people will continue their regular lives and work. If life will be so planet, so peaceful and amazing when Mashiach comes, why would people need to work and bring home Parnassah? Right. So again, the Rambam says that work will be very limited. In other words, meaning um, it's hard to understand this, but my grandfather in Germany was a successful um, manufacturer. He manufactured suits. In the apartment, he had six men who would work and they'd sew suits and he would sell them. And that was his business. He sold suits. So I asked my father once, how many suits did uh, grandpa make a week? He said, maybe about 20, uh, 40 suits a week. I said, oh, interesting. Today, look at a press in China that pumps out a thousand suits an hour. And look at a factory that can produce 10,000 a day. And you realize that things have expanded and things have become so much easier. And what used to take a man two weeks to harvest grapes used to be a two-week process. You had to bring in as many hands as you could because in two weeks you had to harvest all the grapes. And if anyone left on the vine, they'd rot. So you had to hire as many people as you could because it took so long to do. You had to get as many hands as you could. You had such a short harvest time. Today, you take a combine and in one hour, goes through row after row and harvests all the grapes. Things have become so efficient, so effective now that it doesn't take a wild stretch of imagination to understand that when Mashiach comes, men will have to work an hour or two a day. That's it. An hour or two a day because that's where Hashem wants us to be in the world, to use the world in ways of the world. But that's it. And then you're done. And the rest of the day is learning and dominating and accomplishing and chesed and growing, really changing the essence of you, but with an understanding, with a joy, with a and recognizing Hashem there. So the answer is part of life in this world is working. Today, we have to work 8, 10, 12 hours, crazy, crazy hours till it becomes our life. By the way, that itself is the reason to dominate Mashiach. <clears throat> if you live in Muncie, New York, and you travel into the city. All right, today, I don't know what travel means. It means a Zoom phone call. But in the <clears throat> BC, before Corona, <clears throat> people used to work in a normal environment. <clears throat> Guys in Muncie, on a regular basis, would get on a bus, an hour and a half bus ride in, spend an entire day working in a city, and an hour and a half bus ride back. If, you only, if you're at work only eight, nine, ten hours a day, add three hours to that, what's your life? Your entire life is working. And even if you don't have that kind of commute, the bottom line is all of us are working way, way, way more than we would like to. And we have to because of cost of tuition, the housing, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's exorbitant. But that itself is a reason to daven for Mashiach. That's not what we're here for. We're not here to put little numbers in boxes. We're not here to, to sell widgets. We're here to grow and accomplish. Never, I have to do this. I have to earn a living. But if I understand when Mashiach comes, I'll have to work an hour or two a day. And the rest of the time I'll grow and accomplish and really steig. And that itself is a reason to, to dominate to ask Mashiach. I have a lot more questions. So uh, let me know when, when we're done because I have a, quite this a bit. It's taxing, but let's, we'll go a little bit more. Let's see how long I can. Okay, let's let Avrami has a question. Avrami. Yeah. Yep. 
Let me ask you a question. Oh, I think he's. Can you hear me? Yeah, good hear you. Yes. So uh, obviously, this is the most, you know, the most possible, and we want to pour our house, our hearts out in Tzila as much as we could. Um, and obviously, we can't underestimate our Tzila. Hopefully, our Tzila is to be answered this year, and uh, a little bit more or makes a huge difference. But Lamaisa, Israel as a whole, Biachad all pours our hearts out. We all try so difficult to, to, to really feel the tsar and, and it's not coming. So and we know the base of Mikdash was destroyed because of Sinasinam. But I don't know, it doesn't seem like we're not, you know, killing people. We're not, you know, there's obviously flesh and heart is a big problem. But what, what can we do more besides Tfila? What 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 needs to be done? What's the solution for like each one of us to, to help bring Mashiach to help bring Gula? What's what's the excellent question. Do more? Excellent question. All right, so let me first like, fo- focus on one thing. You have to recognize that each generation builds on the one before. So that means we're building on schus of the others and the next generation, next generation. So what we're required to do is much less than any other generation. And we are much smaller than any generation. And that alone might bring Mashiach. Meaning to say, of a midget standing on top of a giant. The midget may be two feet tall, but the giant's 11 feet tall. Suddenly, they're 13 feet tall together. And you have to recognize, we are, I hate to say these words, but we are midgets. Look back on previous generations. Look back four or five generations ago. You'll see we're nobodies. We're nothing compared to them. And if a person may say, what could I do? And what could I do? What could we do to bring Mashiach? Earlier generations couldn't. How could we? And the answer is, it's cumulative. Klaus has to reach a certain level, reach a certain point. And when we get there, it's over. But we have to get there. And our job, hopefully, is a lot, lot less than previous generations. It's cumulative. It builds on the others. And what we have to do is work on exactly those things. Sinistinum. And sinistinum means practicing really being kind and kindly, loving a, a fellow Jew. And a lot of schmoozim that deal with this. There's one schmooze that deals with exactly that point. The baseless hatred isn't baseless. I spoke today on Torah Anytime at 1 o'clock on exactly that topic. That baseless hate. What do you mean hate? Baseless hate. I don't hate anybody without a reason. I hate that guy for a good reason. It's because this and that. Yeah. <clears throat> but if you focus on what those reasons are, you'll see those reasons are baseless. But understanding that, and bottom line is, there's a lot of work to do, a lot of work to do in dominating and growing, many, many areas for us to focus on. And we have to dominate and appreciate that Hashem is, Hashem wants the gula as much as more than we do, because we don't even understand what we're lacking. And you have to do your best, step forward and, and, and try. Rabbi Schaefer, very interesting question over here. It's actually two questions. I'm going to break it up. Due to recent events, there have been more and more talk from our bottom as well in the streets about how much longer Jewish people have to consider USA as a safe haven for, from Jewry. Second, uh, from a Torah perspective, should anybody take action to ensure there's a plan to leave the country? Do I make Aliyah or start looking for houses? That's question A. Question B is: Is there a is there a is there an Indian to live in Eretz Israel before Mashiach comes? Okay, those are two very good questions. Okay. So let's start with the following. Is any place in exile ever safe? The answer is no. Is any place in Israel during the exile safe? The answer is no. If you're escaping America because America is too dangerous during the exile, Israel is no safe. In fact, Israel is far more dangerous. I think more Jews per capita are killed in Israel than anywhere else in the, in the world. So if the reason you're going to make Aliyah is because I'm, I'm scared, I'm living in a dangerous place, I don't know, Israel is not much more safer. 
And the reason we want Mashiach is not so I don't get mugged or killed or beat up. The reason we want Mashiach is because life is not as it's supposed to be. Now, that being said, should a Jew aspire, dream, wish to be an Eretz Yisrael? Of course, every minute of the day, we say to us three times in Dominic, we say over and over, and we ask Hashem. And should a person try their best to the answer is absolutely. Here, though, is one of the great caveats. If you have kids and you don't have yeshivas in Israel that can serve as your kids, that's a big problem. If you have parnasa here and you don't have parnasa here, that's a big problem. So each person has to be, you have to ask that Torah and ask the Ashara based on you, on your situation. But should a Jew always desire, aspire, and wish to be in Israel? Absolutely. And should you try your best? Absolutely. And by the way, if nothing else, it's just easier to learn there, easier to grow, easier to dominate. It's Hashem's land. And we belong there. We're supposed to be there. By the way, you have a bench? In benching, over and over, Allah, for the land. Hashem, thank you for the land. And again and again, we ask Hashem, that land, that's our land. It's our holy land. It's where we want to be and live. The only thing is, you do have to keep in mind that there are certain constraints. In other words, you can't sacrifice your kids on the altar of your wanting to be, you know, living in Israel. You can't sacrifice your entire family by giving up Pranasa if you don't have any way to earn a living there. So, you know, all things in balance. In terms of whether things right now are dangerous, I have to admit that the Antifa is a little frightening because Antifa are a bunch of lunatics. They're, they're the anarchists who are trying to, but the problem is they're getting into mainstream and liberals are starting to buy into the program, defund the police. I've never heard of such anarchy in my life. I never heard of such insane things. And the mission below. If not for the fear, fear, fear of government, a man would swallow his neighbor alive. Defund the police, and you're going to destroy society. And that's what they're talking about. But again, it's from a liberal mindset, it's from a, a very off das Torah perspective. The Antifa, which are basic anarchists, are, are influencing it greatly, and it seems to be creating an awful lot of noise. Now it's always hard to know how much the media is hyping stuff and how much is real. You know, if you watch the news, which again, you're not going to do anymore, hopefully, and you see nightly muggings and shootings. By the way, you want to you want to you want to not watch the news anymore? Just Google the word Chicago crime. Google the word Chicago crime. I did this because I, I want to know what I'm talking about because I try to, you'll see streaming hour after hour, baby shot, 10 people killed, 16 men killed at a funeral. There was a, basically, there was a, a gang war. So at the funeral for the dead gang member, the other gang came and shot them up back. I mean, hour after hour, which Chicago is a, is a city, United States of America. It's not a third world country. It's not at war. This is like, we're talking gangland style killings. And like, what, what? okay. So don't don't watch the news. Don't pay attention. And it's always hard to know how much is overhyped. And again, if you watch it again and again and again, it looks like the whole world is teeming at the edge of insanity. So it's hard to know what, what is real and what's not. But there definitely are things that are, you know, even I, I'm usually pretty complacent. I'm usually not too moved. I'm getting a little, mm, it's a little uh, uncomfortable here. But again, Baruch Hashem, Hashem still runs the world. It's still Hashem's world. And I don't think we got to jump ship now Certainly not if you don't have pronunciation, if you don't have an option for your children, I would say the answer would be no. Thank you, Rabbi Shev. My lecture went out. I'm actually on my cell phone. Stark. Oh, excellent. Okay. Um, these are, I got a few questions like that are similar, but I'm just going to try to base, try to condense them again. I generally don't find myself crying on Tishabov. I always feel really guilty about that. I wish I could do more to be tuned into other people's tragedies and also El Khabere. Is Tishabov meant to bring us to tears? And if you do have any advice on how to bring one to that point, 
often thinking about the Holocaust, other many tragedies that benefit, uh, benefit all. Also, somebody else that on from the Shir texted on the chat, he can't seem to shed a tear on Tisha B'Av. Any advice you could give him that he could shed a tear? Yes, okay. <clears throat> all right, let's start with Hasidic tales of the Holocaust. <clears throat> Yafa Eliach, she was a professor in uh, Brooklyn College, from woman, and wrote a book, buy that book, read that book. Um, but that's only one. In other words, read first-person novels, first-person telling what it was like. We had a normal family life in Poland. Everything was going great in Hungary. This was life. And, we had, and read their stories. Read it. And read about, and, and Baruch Shem, there is a lot of material now. Um, but again, not the facts. Not that, you know, see, six million people died. All right, you know, like, but it's so impartial. It's so It's so large, we can't relate to it. And when you read a first-person account of a person losing a child, a person losing a wife, a person losing a whole family, and, and you, it's real, you read it and get into the story, I think you'll have no trouble crying. Read, all you have to do is read either Holocaust material and read their wonderful books about Tisha B'Av, you know, about the, well, I say wonderful books, you know, I was going to say a wonderful book about the Chorban Bias, but there are, unfortunately, there are very good books about the Chorban Bias that bring you into a first-person, what it was like, and read those things. Read a little bit about Jewish history. But again, not Jewish history from 35,000 feet. We were here, we went, went there. Read first-person events. And I think it'll be a lot easier for you to, to, to cry when you realize these are our brothers, these are our sisters, these are our family. It's happening. You know, again, I have no trouble crying today on Tisha B'Av because just the matzah we live in, it's so insane, so abnormal, so much unhappiness, so much, just so many unwholesome people here, I'll give you a muscle. Would you mind my giving? A, it's not political. But Ben, um, should I do this? Ben Shapiro. Whatever you hold about Ben Shapiro, I don't care. He was going to speak on a college campus. There were notices sent out throughout the college campus. If anyone feels so threatened, we have social services will provide counseling. Meaning the students would be so shooken up because Ben Shapiro was going to speak on campus that they needed counseling. Rabosai, in a sane, wholesome world, with sane, wholesome people, you're able to deal with people of different opinions. Whether you hold a Ben Shapiro or not, I think he's right on target, he's great, but whether you think he's accurate or not, even if you disagree with him, and even if you don't agree, you're so shooken up, you need to go, I need for therapy, I have to go, but my whole world, we're snowflakes, snowflakes, generation of snowflakes, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. Wholesome, happy people able to grow and accomplish do what they're supposed to. That's a reason to cry. We don't have it. We're so lacking. It's so far off from what it's supposed to be. That alone is a reason to cry. Yeah. Okay. How many more, Shaver? Just a couple more because my voice is all but shot. So we'll take a couple I'm more. I'm getting thirsty right I'm just trying to get thirsty. Yeah. Um, I know we need to wait for Mashiach. I understand we're on Gullus now. What should I do? What does it mean to wait for Mashiach? What does it mean? What does it mean to wait? Your suitcases are packed. You're ready to go. What, what does it mean? Where am I going? Where am I going? How am I going? Where am I going? And that's the point. You see, before you pack your suitcase, you have to know what you're packing for. Imagine I say, hey, listen, we're going on a two-week trip. Where are we going? I don't know. Just pack, pack. Well, I'm going to the Arctic. I need one set of clothes. I'm going to the equator. I need a different set of clothes. Where, where are we going? No, just pack, just pack. You can't pack your suitcase in Mashiach if you don't know where you're going. So the first thing to know is, A, life as it is, is not the way it's supposed to be. And B, you have to know what life is supposed to be like. And when you begin learning it, and you read the Chazals, and you study, and if you're not sure, listen to the various shmoos and speakers who can describe, and 
help bring you into a world that's supposed to be, and then all of a sudden you'll be ready to pack your suitcases. You'll be ready to start yearning for Mashiach. You can't yearn for Mashiach if you don't know what it is. First of all, this is normal. I don't, I don't know what that is. And who wants to go there? I'm, I have fear of the unknown, fear of the stress. This is regular. It's fine. Life is good. Well, who needs <clears throat> pack my bags for why? And so the first thing you have to know is that life as it is isn't the way it's supposed to be. And the only way you really can know that is by knowing how it's, what it's supposed to be like. And the more you think and the more you bone and the more you understand that, then you're actually able to yearn for Mashiach, cry for Mashiach, and scream Hashem enough. Rabbi Shafer, two more questions, one off topic and one on topic. Can we do it? All right, let's do the on topic, right, whichever one, every way you want. Two more we can get? No, two more. Okay, yeah. two more. Shalom Aleichem, I'm learning in Koyal for a number of years now, and I'm looking to raise you wrote my... That before Tisha B'Av, right? What? You wrote that before Tisha B'Av, I hope. Of course, of course. Okay, good. Of course. I only try this once a year. I'm not so good at that. Yeah. I raise my children with strong Torah, Shkavos, and Das Torah. My wife is very attached to her smartphone and social media. I see my three-year-old daughter and my one-year-old son becoming attached to her phone as well. I'm very concerned for my children's spiritual future. How am I supposed to deal with this? Thank you. Have a nice and easy fast. Thank you. Have a nice and easy fast. One more after this. Thank you. Have a nice and easy fast. Okay, let me be very candid. In my hand is a portal. This is a portal to the depth of depravity. I sincerely believe that if you took the biggest mushrasim in stone va'amora, the worst of the worst, and gave them unfiltered internet access for 30 minutes, they would fall on their faces. We were nobodies. We were no, you guys are so mechadish in, in shashas and deviance and deprivation. We, we couldn't even imagine the things you do. You guys are great. We were nobodies. The worst Rishayim of history could not imagine what's accessible and available on an iPhone, on the internet. And your little children are going to see that. Isn't that a reason to cry, Hashem? I can't do it. I can't keep these things out of my kids' hands. And I don't want my three-year-old, my five-year-old, my eight-year-old, my ten-year-old seeing this stuff. It's perverse. It's destructive. It's damaging. It's so opposite of anything healthy and wholesome. It's going to destroy the essence of it. And I can't do anything about it because it's all over. There are no walls because it's Wi-Fi. There's no way to keep it out. I'll go to tag and I'll get rid of it. And fine. And but there'll be another kid in the class who has access. And the amount, it's just so, it, it's so impossible. And long ago, I started throwing up my hands. I don't know what to tell you. You can't fight with your wife because you're going to destroy your family. And you can't let your kids see it because it's going to destroy them. What do you do? Daven for Mashiach. That's why you should daven for Mashiach. You're in an impossible situation. If you're going to tell your wife, drop the phone, she's going to drop you. So that's not going to work. Well, I'll fight her. Yeah, you're exactly. So you can't do that. And if your kids see this stuff, forget about it. They're going to be their brain. They'll be toast. So what do you do? There is only one solution. Filters won't help. Sifas won't help. The only solution is Mashiach. Hashem redeem us. We can't do it. You know that Guard Your Eyes is a fantastic organization. I'm a big supporter. I hold to them. I create material for them whenever I can. They have 35,000 members, 35,000 brave soldiers who are man enough to stand up and say, I can't deal with this. I need help. 35,000. And I guarantee you, it's a splinter of a splinter of the amount of people who really should be getting that help on a regular basis. The addictions, the amount of, and I mean in every way, and obviously in internet stuff, but in everything else, the amount of perversion, the amount of destructive things that we're exposed to on a regular basis that's the reason to dominate Hashem. This is abnormal. This is not regular. 
a man should be able to go on the internet and not be have to look away, stand away, go away, can't look at TV, can't look at it, can't go on the street. Can't, where can you go? You can't go anywhere. You cannot. If you're a man who would like to be holy and have eyes for your wife alone, you cannot go anywhere. Muncie, New York, Baruch Hashem is pretty safe. It's pretty good. And certainly the Hasidic blocks, you know, you go to, okay. Other than that, but don't worry about it because the bus will pass with an ad. And don't worry about it. As soon as you get a phone call, there's going to be an ad. Don't believe me. There is no place safe. There's no place, there's no island. And that's the reason to Dominic Hashem, we can't do it. Please save us, redeem us. It's over. We can't do it anymore. Please help. That's the answer to that question. Forever Shaver, last question, okay? Yeah. And we got to go down Mincha. Yeah. Wanting for something every day after after every day and while it's kind of hard. One second. Waiting for something every day and after a while it gets kind of hard. It's very hard for me to want and yearn every day and not see results. So eventually I give up. What should I do? Okay. Um, let me focus on something that I haven't spoken about yet, but there's, there's another reason why we should desperately crave Mashiach. And to explain it to you, I'll give you a very simple muscle. Imagine you're born in, excuse me, that my, that my voice goes, here we go. Imagine you were born in Poland in the 1920s, and you grew up in a very loving family. And your father was a good balabas, and he worked, and he took care of the kids, and he lived in a nice house, and everything was fine and well. Until that fateful day, 1941, the Nazis entered the town and your family's taken, you and your father sent to Auschwitz, the rest of your family's killed out and you live for four years, four years in Auschwitz. For four years, you live there and you barely survive. And after the war, after the war, your father says, let's go back to my house. That was my father's house before me. Let's go back and let's, we'll see where we'll go from there. You go back with your father to Poland and you go to the street and in that house is a peasant Poland peasant, Polish peasant. And the Polish peasant says, what are you doing here? And the man said, this is my house. What are you doing? This is my house. My grandfather built it. It's not your house. And the peasant spits, slams the door. Could you imagine the, the anger you'd feel? It's not your house. You stole that. It's not bad enough you were complicit with the Nazis taking us away, but you're stealing my father's house. This is Hashem's world. Hashem created the world. Hashem orchestrates everything in creation. And to hear somebody say, whatever, it evolved, whatever, who cares about God? God's not relevant. There should be a sense of disgust, anger within me. This is Hashem's world. Hashem is the ultimate giver. Hashem is the ultimate benefactor. And all Hashem wants is good. And you, you live in His world, sleep in His bed, <clears throat> sleep on His pillow, and you deny His existence, or you fight against Him, you rebel against Him. There should be such a sense of anger within a Jew every day. And by the way, when we say Kaddish, that's what we're saying. Hashem, may your great name be blessed, increased. Meaning right now, there's such a chil Hashem. Hashem's presence isn't felt. And there's such a busha because the Jewish nation are mavuza and they're embarrassed and they're put down. Hashem isn't relevant. And to live in Hashem's house and say, it's my house and God isn't relevant to this question is the greatest chil Hashem and that should cause a Jew such pain. So if you want to know what you should down for every day, again, number one, it's our pain. Our pain, what we're living through. How life is supposed to be as we are. The way we're living now is not the way it's supposed to be. You certainly should count the pain of previous generations and understand all the builds. And you should also focus on the fact that Hashem, it's, it's such a kill Hashem. And Hashem's chosen nation is treated this way. That Hashem's holy name is treated this way. And I think that's something that we focus on in Kaddish every day. And I think it's something to focus on on a daily basis.
All right, but yeah, let's, you know, let's end. All right, I, I want to thank everyone for joining. I wish you a good rest of the fast. This will be the last one. And next one, Yishlaim Abnuya. I hope you have a good, easy fast and a good year. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.